Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend calling in from St. Louis, Valerie Green. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie. Thanks. Um, Valerie is a transgender Latter-day Saint in her 50s, and it's an honor to have her on the podcast. And as I said a prayer before, I just pray that since Valerie's been on this road for a long time, you know, five decades, um, that her perspective will be helpful for parents that are um, have transgender children and those of you that are transgender and are kind of new to this road and recognizing this part about you. Um, Valerie is um, a believer in the church. Um, As I mentioned, she's in her 50s. She's an IT analyst professionally. Um, Will you tell us about Emmaus LGBTQ ministry, um, Valerie? Just introduce, you're the co, you're founding co-chair of that. Help our listeners understand what that is. Sure. Um, So Emmaus actually just kind of appeared in my lap. (laughs) You know, I wasn't part of, it wasn't my original idea, but I was contacted because they wanted to have a, a third person to start this. And so I was contacted by Erica Munson and John uh, Gustav Rathal. Uh, We had met each other on the Mormons Building Bridges uh, Facebook group and gotten to know each other. And I actually met John at an affirmation conference in Chicago last year. Uh, And so we, when they were looking for this third person, they, they contacted me, which I thought was funny because when I first came out at church and told them I was transitioning. I I always get these Walter Mitty ideas in my head. And I think, wouldn't it be neat if this happened? And I thought, wouldn't it be neat if they decided they wanted to have a liaison between the LGBTQ community and the church? And I got to do that. I thought, no, that'll never happen. And then, you know, a year and a half later, I get this phone call. Would you please join us in in establishing this foundation to start um, to build the Emmaus LGBTQ ministry. And that's, and I, I said, yes, I'll do that. So the, the ministry is set up to um, start to organize people around the world uh, to uh, create groups of people that are associated with and who honor the authority of the local leadership to establish groups that um, allow LGBTQ people to come together along with their allies in a setting where they know that any of the more harmful rhetoric that they might normally listen to is not going to be used. And it lets them be comfortable and being exactly who they are and not worrying about whether they're being judged or whether somebody in the room is going to object to something they say or do. To just be comfortable while they work on their own, um, building their own faith and work on their own, well, I call it their pastoral care that, that so many LGBTQ people need within the church. And they tend not to find because there are so many messages that um, uh, bombard their psyche, you know, really. And, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people leave the church because of the messages that they hear at church and some of, especially some of the older attitudes which I think are changing. So we want to create environments where um, 
working with local leadership, we established groups to say, look, these are our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Let's bring them together. And I think one of the words that um, Erica used was, how did she put that? She wanted it to be uh, awesomely, oh, radically inclusive, I think was the word I she used. That. So it's not, it's not just the people who are choosing to follow the guidelines that are in the handbooks that says these are the things you can and cannot do if you want to remain in full good standing and get your temple recommend and do all of those things. But married couples who are LGBTQ, um, who want to come to a place where they can feel comfortable being in that space with their spouse of the, of the same sex, for instance, um, or um, somebody who may be not fully open and out, but wants to come to worship as themselves. And they, they might normally present as their birth gender, but they would prefer to uh, present at a meeting in their, um, one of the older terms as the preferred or the real gender. And so we want them to be comfortable coming and worshiping as who they are, as their whole selves, and just, you know, get together with each other, the LGBTQ community, and also with uh, allies in the church who are ready and open and willing to extend those embracing arms of love. And that's a great introduction. I mean, that, my impression is this is a safe place for people that um, continue want to be associated with the LDS church and people that want to feel safe being LGBTQ and, and in that identity. And Absolutely. so we will link to this Facebook group. Um, it's spelled E-M-M-A-U-S, LGBTQ Ministry. And yes. um, this will be a wonderful episode for Valerie. Valerie's a transgender female. So I'm looking at Valerie. She is, you know, I call her a woman. She's female. She takes on the she, her pronouns. Um, and I just, as a measure of respect, just um, call her female. She doesn't have to earn that. And she will share, share her story as a transgender Latter-day Saint. Um, as I may have mentioned, she has five children, six grandchildren. Her wife, she was married for how many years were you married? We were married for 34 years. And so she was married to her wife um, and her wife passed away. And so she, do you, do you call yourself a widow? I do. Yeah. Right. In fact, the first time someone asked about my wife after she passed away, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and someone sitting next to me looked over and she goes, Valerie's a widow now. I'm like, yep, that's the word. <laughs> so so that's, that would be yeah. consistent with your pronouns and your gender identity yes. to call you a widow. I've just never thought about that before. So this is um, educational for our listeners just to understand. And I'm grateful for Valerie having the courage to share her story. So. Um, talk about gender dysphoria for our listeners, and just a comment about my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, that you can get at Desert Book or Amazon. Chapter 8 is the only chapter I dedicated to one group on the LGBTQ um, world, and that was transgender Latter-day Saints, because often they kind of, their stories aren't as well known, and they kind of Sometimes when we go in this space, we think of gay men and gay women and transgender Latter-day Saints stories. Sometimes um, we don't hear as much. So I felt in the book to spend a, a chapter on this subject. And it's so honored to have Valerie on the 
on the podcast. So introduce gender dysphoria to our listeners and when you first noticed that in your life. So gender dysphoria is, there's a clinical explanation and I'll probably get it wrong, but we'll go with, with what sounds like comfortable. Uh, gender dysphoria is an incongruence between who you feel like you are and, and who you believe you are in your head and incongruence with how you present yourself to the world and the way the world sees you. So in my head, I was always a girl from, the, from my youngest age, since I was four. And I've always believed that and I've always felt that way. But at birth, I was, the doctor, you know, caught me and took a look and declared me a boy. And so I was assigned male at birth is the term for that. And from that point forward, it was like, you know, you're going to live your life as a little boy, uh, despite the fact that I never felt like I was a boy. At the most, I would have been a tomboy, but I always felt like I was a girl. In fact, I used to do all kinds of weird things to kind of push that. We used to play in the, in the, in the neighborhood and we would play um, superheroes. And we would each pick a superhero to be, and I would always wait till the end, and then I would just guffaw and disgust and say well i guess i have to be supergirl <laughs> and i would do things like that but just little things throughout my childhood that i i look back and i go yeah that was it right there um but it, so gender dysphoria really says look i internally i believe that i am female a woman but the world sees me as a boy and they expect me to act like a boy and if i don't act like a boy then I will get bullied or harassed or chastised or whatever. So it's really that, that feeling of incongruence, which can be strong or it can be weak. I'm fortunate that mine was real and I knew it was there, but it wasn't debilitating like it can be for some people. It did not cause me to be depressed. It did not cause me to um, have suicidal ideation. So I was able to find ways to cope with it and uh, live with it without it being detrimental to my ability to perform and to interact with other people. But it was always there, and I always knew that it was there. Did you do things to manage it, the dysphoria, um, Valerie? Like, did you dress in women's clothes or grow your hair out long? Or were the things that you did that just helped you minimize this incongruence? So as a young child, I was being raised, my, my brother and I were the two only children of a single mom. My mom was single from, um, I barely remember my um, biological father. And I, I think I last saw him when I was three years old. Very, very big memories. So I had, I was being raised by my mother and by my aunts and primarily my grandmother. I had a grandfather in the picture, but he was always busy and working and so I was raised by a group of women and which meant I had access to all the things that they had so I was always playing dress up but always dress up was played in uh, women's clothes or my mother's shoes and it was also helpful that in the 19 late 60s and early 70s my mother wore wigs all the time so I had access to wigs so I had all kinds of things I got access to and because she was a single mom I was left at home a lot at a younger age than most kids 
which meant I had free roaming with the house and I could go get into her clothing. So I would do those things all the time. And occasionally she would find out and she would uh, have a discussion with me about the things that I shouldn't be doing. Um, I used to steal some of her undergarments and I would wear those and my brother would like touch my back and he would just see that he could, he could detect that they were there and he would yell, Oh, Virgil, which is my, my birth name, or actually he just called me junior because everyone in my family called me junior. Junior's wearing that stuff again. And I would get another talking to by my mother uh, about how I should behave and what I should be doing. And she, and she would do all kinds of things to help emphasize having a male role model in my life. I think she thought that was missing and that was what was causing this to happen. So she enrolled us in things like big brothers, big sisters. So we'd have a big brother presence in our life. Um, she went and got the book. I think it was, was it by Skousen? It was like, so you want to raise a boy? And she used that and she would read stuff to me out of that about the way I should be acting. But um, still it persisted throughout my life. And, you know, at the same time, I'm hearing all these messages that this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm also kind of wishing it would all go away but it never goes away once, once it's there. Um, and it's been there all my life. It, it just doesn't go away. So I would get into things on occasion and kind of explore a few things. I didn't do anything on a consistent basis until after I really told my wife about it, which was 20 or 14 years into our marriage, which is jumping way ahead. But once I, once I came to my own understanding of it, and I reached that point where I could push away the shame and the guilt that I'd built up over the years and accept it about myself, then I was able to do things on a consistent basis. So I got rid of all of my, I wore, I wore um, feminine style underwear, but from the men's section. <laughs> and, but I would also wear um, uh, opaque pantyhose instead of dress socks. And so for the last 20 years of our marriage, that's the way I presented so that I could grow out my nails just a little bit and occasionally wear clear polish and wear uh, tights whenever I needed to wear something that looked like a dress sock. And that was my, that was my consistent action to help alleviate that through that time, which made it easier to deal with. And uh, then occasionally I would go out and get fully dressed up and go out like to a support group or uh, go somewhere in town to, to visit friends or something. Um, that's a great segment, Valerie. Just even though you jumped way ahead, I think it helps our listeners understand this isn't something that was a phase. Um, it's something that's been with you. I've shared this before on the podcast and it's in the book, but someone described it to me like being carsick. Um, it's the best way me being cisgender could understand a transgender person was someone compared, you know, you're in being carsick, you're just nauseated and you want to do, there's this mismatch and everything's wrong inside of you and you want to do, and yeah. that's the dysphoria and you want to get out of the car and you want to do everything you can to sort of manage that. And, and then I even went one step further and someone said, imagine explaining carsick to somebody who didn't even know what a car was. And never been in a car <laughs> and trying yeah. to explain that feeling. And so that helps me as a cisgender guy for our listeners. That's the opposite of transgender. I am biologically male and feel male. So there's none of this dysphoria. And so I don't feel any of the things Valerie feels. So 
part of this podcast is just hearing stories to create empathy and and to create believability that what Valerie's experienced her whole life is real. I don't know if that resonates with you, the car. I don't want to put analogies into your story that may not resonate with you, but that helped me anyway. I, I think it fits. I, I had someone last January, I was talking to them. And it was actually, a, it was actually my wife's, one of my wife's best friends when she was a child, before we got married as a teenager. And I went to visit her while I was um, on another trip. I hadn't seen her in a long, long time. And we had some great discussions. And she actually had contacted me after I announced that I was transitioning um, because it turns out that she has LGBTQ people in her family as well. And so she contacted me um, and we had a lot of discussion because I now was someone that she knew that could kind of tap into and explain to her things from the LGBTQ community's perspective that she hadn't thought of before. But we, we got together and we were sitting talking and she, she said, she said, so what is it about, um, what is it that was so attractive that made you want to become a woman? And I thought about that for a minute and I said, well, you know, that's, that's exactly the, the wrong question because the question is, um, I've never, I didn't want to become a woman. I always was a woman. I just appeared to be a man. And then I gave her this analogy. I said, so imagine if tomorrow morning you wake up and she's married. So I said, and you look down and you realize that suddenly you are in what was your husband's body. All the things that you like, all the things, all your interests, all your friends, um, all the activities that you enjoy, none of those have changed. They're all still what you were the day before. But now you look like this other person and people perceive you as this other person. And they expect you to act like this other person. And it's completely foreign to you because this doesn't compute to the what you were thinking the day before. And I said, for a transgender person, that's what it feels like every single day of your life, knowing that this is just wrong and you desperately want to fix it. That's helpful. And that's what transition is in many cases is, is finally fixing that incongruity to bring you more happiness and peace in your life to get rid of that, that, that gnawing feeling that's there all of the time. Um, Valerie, as I, I haven't mentioned yet, grew up in Lubbock, Texas, was married to her wife at age 18, had these five kids and then her <laughs> wife passed away. Talk about, you've mentioned it already, but talk about what caused you to finally talk to your wife about this part of you oh that that was an interesting story so my wife and i we didn't have the perfect marriage you know everybody thinks you're going to have this perfect mormon marriage and we didn't um, my wife was um eventually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder which means it's an interesting life living with someone who has borderline personality disorder um so but our, our marriage had rocky points, and so we were. I had suggested that we go in for uh, marriage counseling. And so we were seeing this counselor who was seeing both of us as a couple and also individually. And one of the things that she was working on with me was getting away from my logical, stoic, 
um, very um, flat affect kind of personality and getting more in touch with my creative side and my emotional side, et cetera. And I didn't understand it at the time, but basically I, I had suppressed my emotional side my entire life because my emotional side was my female side and I couldn't let anyone see it. So we're, ha- we're seeing these, this counselor and one of the things she's working on, as I said, is to get me to open up and get out of my head and into my heart. And so one day she gave me this assignment and she said, um, I need to tell her who I am as opposed to what I do. You know, when you meet someone, you introduce them the first time and you say all these things about things that have happened in their lives or what they do. So even you introduced me here as someone who's an IT analyst and that I'm a parent and I have kids and grandkids, et cetera. But we very rarely talk about who we actually are. And so that's what she wanted me to do. And so she said, I had to do, I had two requirements. One was that I had to tell her who I was. And second was that I had to do it in the creative, most creative way possible that I can think of. I couldn't write an essay because I, I write a lot and I hide myself behind words. And so she said, if you're going to use words, you have to use, you have to write a poem or write a song or something, just something creative to get away from this presentation that you normally have. I was driving home from that episode, from that session and I didn't know what I was going I didn't know what to tell her I didn't know how I was going to do it and I drove around for about an hour and then suddenly it hit me I'm like oh I know what I have to talk about I know what I have to say and I know suddenly I knew how I was going to do it so I knew it was time to finally tell someone else in the world that I was I didn't have the word transgender at the time. At the time, I was using the word crossdresser. I didn't know what to call it. But I had to I had to finally tell someone that this is who I was, that I am not this male that people think I am. So I stopped at Kmart and grabbed a couple of ugly dresses and some bad makeup. And then I spent the next few weeks. Um, I was working out of, time, out of town at the time. So I would take the stuff with me. And while I was out of town, I would in the evenings, work on trying to understand makeup and trying to get the clothes right. And then I would also, I also took my video camera with me and I did a kind of self-interview where I talked about what I thought might be causing this, where it might have come from, how my family might have influenced it, how, how I was treated and acted as a child. And so I built this, this videotape and I took it back in a few weeks later to the counselor and I told her, just have a VCR ready, and I'm going to give you this tape and with no preamble at all. And so I put that in, and we watched it together. And after we finished it, she just looked at me, and she goes, and I was, now I have to tell you this, this woman is a member of the church. And so I did not know what to expect from her. I was expecting a lot of different things than what I got. Um, but we watched it, and she she just looked at me and she goes, well, thank you for sharing that. Now we have to find your style. And that was the first time that I had told another person how I felt and who I was. And it was so nice to be just accepted and loved um, as I did that. 
and there was no shock, no, um, no, it's her job, kind of my thing. <laughs> but still, there was no shock. There was there was no um, chiding, uh, no chastisement, no correction to what I was thinking. It was just like, great, now I know who you are. Let's let's go with that. That's how I found out. So my next step, once I that was that was the day, and that was the point at which I finally dropped all the shame and guilt when I said, "Look, this is who I am," and I finally pushed it all away. And so I said, "Now we have to tell my wife," because uh, at this point we'd been married for fourteen years or approximately. So our next couple of sessions were all about how to tell my wife, and my wife had lots of lots of issues. Um. And so it was like, well, we're going to add one more thing to her to her pile of things that um, bother her. But we needed to do it. And so a couple of weeks later, just before we were going to tell her, I'm sitting in uh, at church in a bishopric meeting because at the time I was executive secretary. And I get a phone call from my wife and she is she is livid. And so trying to figure out what's wrong and it turns out she found in my house the clothes that i had purchased to make this videotape for my counselor and so she just assumed i was having an affair and that i'd had some other woman in my home in her home and she was up she was mad and i said no no that's not what it is at all i promise you there's a different explanation and so i told her i said don't don't get the kids ready i'll come home after bishopric meeting and we went in and we finished it because we were just closing up. And I went home and I explained to her what was going on. And she did not believe me. <laughs> she just told me that I must be making up this great excuse for having an affair and hiding it. And that she didn't understand why I would make up this other story. And I said, no, it's true. And Joe, Joe is our counselor, um, short for Joanne. I said, Joe knows about it. We were going to tell you next week. We were, you were literally just days away from being told this in a more controlled setting. And she still didn't believe me. So I called Joe. It was a Sunday. I said, Joe, can we, can we get together? And so we all, Joe said, sure. So at six o'clock that evening, we drove down halfway and she drove halfway up to our house. And we met at a mall and we had a VCR in our van. So we, we got in the van and we watched this videotape together so that my wife would know that it was real. And after we watched it, I got out of the van, and my she and uh, Joe and, and my wife, Robin, uh, talked about it for a while so that she could understand that it was true, that it was real. That I wasn't lying to her. This is what was going on. So it was kind of a shock for her to learn this. It was not the way we wanted her to learn about it. So then we spent, that was 14 years into our marriage, so we spent the next 20 years kind of negotiating what this was like. Um how it was going to proceed. Uh, we we didn't tell anyone else because my wife could not stand for anyone else to know about it. And from from my perspective, I was like, well, my wife hasn't, she isn't, isn't demanding a divorce. She isn't taking my kids away from me. Um, she's not trying to throw me out of the house. Uh, so I can find some compromises. And I, I felt I had, I felt I had a personal obligation to protect my job, um, protect our position in the church, protect my wife. Um, she was very concerned about social repercussions for hearing about this. I had a family to provide for. So I'm like, I can I can somehow manage to do this. So that's what I did. So I just kind of suppressed it. And then I negotiated with her different ways to um, 
expressed myself, which included uh, wearing the opaque pantyhose or tights and growing out my nails a little bit and just finding little ways to to express myself without it having to become overt and exposing her to what she was concerned about and not telling her kids so that the kids didn't have to keep secrets about their parents. So that was how my wife found out. And quite by accident, uh, just shortly after she was supposed to be told, I would, I would have preferred that she had been told in a controlled environment, but it just didn't happen. So we got what we got. That's a beautiful story. I just think that's a family success, success story, a marriage success story. There's no roadmap for the road you, either of you are on. And I admire you going to counseling. I admire you coming out. I admire you keeping the communication channels open. And I admire you keeping, you know, your family together and sort of compromising. Um, as our listeners may be aware, and as Valerie is an expert, that stages of transition are kind of these social legal and medical. So social is the things that Valerie's talking about, like changing dress and grooming. Legal would be name change and medical hormones and undergoing surgery. Um, Talk about, and all of this listeners, as I've learned about is just, it's not every, it's not rebellion. It's not trying to turn your back on God. It's just trying to deal with dysphoria. It's to deal with this car sickness. For me, it's to get out of the car and stop driving. Yeah. For Valerie, it's I. this is really painful. And so what do I do? I grow my nails out. I wear whatever you said you wear. Um, it seems pretty innocuous. Um, but to me, things, I mean, 10 years ago, I would have said, well, this is all a sign of you being confused, Valerie, or perhaps even Satan confusing you or the fact you didn't have a biological father. I, I, I don't want to trigger Valerie by saying all these things she's heard before, but I just recognize I, 10 years ago, I would have tried to find a backstory to explain how you're confused. And now I realize there is no backstory. This is really how you are. And, and no one's confused you. And this is just, I think we'll learn the science eventually why Valerie has always felt this way. And in 10 or 20 years, we'll have, we'll have the science to give us more compassion to sort of go, Oh my gosh, I, if I'd only known back then um, the science for why you feel the way you feel, um, then I would have been a lot kinder to you way back then. (laughs) So I look at what we're trying to do now with our, with the example of Christ is just be kind and honor how you feel and say, what can I do to lift your burden, Valerie, versus add your burden with my uninformed opinions? So that's not for you, Valerie. It's kind of for listeners as I'm trying to learn, as I'd learned a little bit about this space. Um, talk to, you could go anywhere you want to on this podcast, but there's, I'm in a Facebook group of LDS parents that have LGBTQ kids, and they invited me in there as a guest since I don't have any. (laughs) Um, But often there's parents that have a, you know, a transgender child that's come out in their teens or a non-binary child. Just will you take a second and talk to those parents? Because they're looking for somebody like you that's been on this road just to help them help their kid. Sure. In fact, I, I hear these stories yeah, a lot. Probably get um, these a lot. <laughs> um, I was just reading one recently, and one of the groups, um, someone asking about their child who is is transgender, 
and they just don't know one parent is understanding and supportive and the other is not. What do we do? There's all different kinds of questions that come up. Um, I can tell you that every child who comes out has been thinking about this for a long, long time. And if they came out to you, then that that talks about a level of trust that they have in you as a parent. Um, there, someone said it recently. They said, um, a transgender child who comes out is not asking for their approval of their parents. They're asking if their parents will still love them for who they actually are. And one of the things that, that I have always, I've told people who are questioning whether they should transition or not, but it also applies to all the other letters, um, L, G, and B, and Q, and I, and A, is that everyone deserves to be loved for who they are, not for who someone thinks they are or who they thought they were, but who they actually are. And you can't be loved for who you are unless you tell someone who you are. And so when a child comes to you and says, look, mom and dad, this is, this is what, this is who I am. They're telling you, I want to be loved for actually who I am, not for who you thought I was, not for all the dreams that you had for me before. If I, if not for the, the temple marriage you had been thinking about, not for the mission you thought I was going to go on all these different things. They're saying, look, this is who I actually am, and I want you to love me, not this image that you had of who, who you thought you were raising. So that's the most important thing is to understand this is why the child is coming out to you. I want you to see who I actually am, which is kind of kind of fits in with the, our lesson from the Leaf Society this last Sunday, which was talking all about seeing people as Christ sees you. And understanding that you need to see deeply into a person and understand who they are past the facade that they give you at church, because everyone goes to church and they're dressed in their, their Sunday best, and they're behaving the way that they're supposed to because they're a good little Mormon. Um, <clears throat> but you go home and sometimes things are different, and you need to understand who someone really is and who they are as a whole person, not just their church persona. So um, number one, if a child comes out to you, you simply let them know that you love them. Uh, you may not understand this, and it's going to be a shock to any parent who hears about it. Again, a child who comes out has been thinking about this for a long, long time and had to develop and build up to that level of trust. Assuming, assuming it's a quiet coming out, sometimes this can be done in anger because they're just so upset with the way things are. That can be a different a little bit more scary situation sometimes because it, um, emotions can get high and and um, reactions can be a little bit more severe than we want them to be. But um, the, the most important thing you can do for a child that comes out and tells you, no matter how they do it, is to let them know that they're still loved. That's what that's what they're seeking and that's what they need. Um, a parent is going to go through a whole series of emotions because the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go through a denial stage. This can't be true. This isn't happening. 
And I can tell you that the transgender child has already been through that stage. No transgender person I've ever met was just completely comfortable with being transgender their entire life. I, I wanted it to go away all my life. I thought maybe it'll go away the first time I kiss a girl or the first time I get a, when I get a girlfriend or when, when I get married or the first time uh, I'm intimate or when I finally have a child or, you know, all these things are going to make it go away, but they don't. It just gets, it just builds as it grows over time. And I reached, I knew at some point, I, I've, I've actually known since I was 10 that I wanted to transition because at the age of 10, I found an article about Dr. Renee Richards, the first and only transgender professional US tennis player. And this was in the uh, mid 70s. And I, I found that article and that was the first time I found that it was possibly to physically and socially transition. And I've been waiting for it since the time I was 10 years old. So I've been thinking about it a long time. And this is true for any child that comes out to a parent. So number one is let the child know that you love them. That is, that is what they absolutely need. Second is to educate yourself, to find out all the things that you don't know. This child has probably learned all kinds of things that you now need to learn as a parent because they're, you're probably starting from ground zero. When this, when this happens. And there's so much to learn to understand your child. Um, understand the importance of the things that they're asking for. Um, odds are the child will ask to socially transition. And then that's, that's the, the first um, stage of transition you were mentioning, although they're not always done in, the right, in that same order. And I actually have a slightly different set of stages. One is um, a social transition, and then legal, and then medical, and then surgical. I separate those two because they're very different I like that. things. That's great. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, the, a child that comes out may or may not request these things. And I, I, I'm, I'm fully in favor of a, a child who comes out being given the opportunity to socially transition. Um, I recommend that people follow the WPATH standards, which is the World Professional uh, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, I think is what it stands for, WPATH. And they have a guidebook you can download, and they talk about their guidance. And actually, they're changing their guidance right now, so I haven't seen the new ones yet. Um, but even in there, they'll tell you that a many children who are exploring their gender identity may have it go away um, as they move through adolescence up, up into their teen years. It's possible. In fact, it's, it's in most in many cases, it, it does happen. But that child still needs to be supported in their journey. And it's not a question of supporting that child for a transition, but supporting that child in their exploration. Because they need to be given the opportunity to figure out who they are. The, the, especially the ages from like, 10 to 15 years old, those are, those are some scary times for a child. When, when a person is trying to figure out exactly who they are, understanding themselves, um, you'll see a lot, of, a lot of strange things, transgender or not, you'll see a lot of strange, th strange things in children of that age. And they need to be given some understanding that as a parent, you will help them and understand and help, help them explore who they are. Uh, so, you know, love them, learn to understand, 
support your child in their exploration. Those are the three, those are the things that are necessary. Because this is important for the mental health of your child. Telling, finding out they aren't loved or for them thinking they aren't loved, devastating for a child. We have a huge, uh, a huge problem with um, suicide in the LGBTQ community. And it is high among transgender youth in the 42% range for people who have attempted um, death by suicide. And you can literally save their life by letting them know that they're loved. Um, even if it's only one parent, someone needs to know that, that child has the support and love of their of the people that are in their lives. Uh, and from there, from there, every situation is different. You have to find out what what the child is seeking, um, what the parents, uh, how how they're reacting, uh, their willingness to learn. Um, I'm not sure where we go from there. It, it's it's really once you hit that first point, loving your child and making sure they know they're loved, that is that is the most important point. That is the thing that may save their life. That's a great segment, Valerie. Will you go back to clarify? Because I, I think you talked about those guidelines and said that some people, this is a phase. I don't think you used the word phase, but you said some people feel gender dysphoria and that goes away and they don't ever transition. Did you say that? Just explain more about what about that segment so listeners yeah. totally understand that. I think phase has picked up a really bad connotation because it gets lumped up with lumped them with fad, and this is certainly not a fad. This this is a child who is um, perhaps questioning who they are, and they're trying to just understand themselves. And in some cases, they go through this period of exploration learning more about themselves and finding out where they need to be in the world. And there is, there is a degree of desistance. Um, one, one of the, some of the things that they look for when they're doing uh, the, the medical and psychological care of someone who is transgender is they look for persistence and consistency and insistence. So those are the three insistence, persistence, and consistence. Is it, are they, always telling you they're a girl, do they, um, do they tell you forcefully that they are uh, a girl? I'm speaking from the male, the female side, that's the side that I know. And um, do they waver in that? And they want, for, for um, medical professionals, they want that to be persistent, consistent, and insistent over a period of time and that can that can fade away some people um it, 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 sorry, fade away is just kind of the wrong word for it but it it does it, they reach a point where they understand that look okay i am i am I, I'm, I'm comfortable in my body i'm comfortable with who i am and it it, it leaves for them could the, others does um, the gender dysphoria fade valerie or just the need to transition well i think gender dysphoria actually has a clinical definition that 
requires the persistence, consistence, and insistence. And um, then bear in mind, this, this is my layman's interpretation of it. And there will actually be some people who will be very much against my definition of what's going on because they think that the W path guidelines that they ask to follow, which involves evaluation by a psychologist, are what's called gatekeeping. And that, that it, is, it is a way to um, prevent people from transitioning. Um, I followed the WPATH standards because I wanted to make certain that I was exactly where I should be. And I wanted to um, have access to certain uh, medical and surgical options. And I think it's great. Um, so, yeah. So w, WPATH will talk about desistance and talk about the fact that it, it could go away. And in, they give a percentage, but that percentage is being adjusted, and I don't know what the latest numbers are. Um, but yes, some people will explore, uh, and then they'll go, no, that's that's not how I actually feel. I thought that it was, and I didn't understand. Um, others, uh, like myself, will look at it and go, yep, yeah, that's exactly who I am, and it will grow and over time. So for some people, sure. Um, the, their feelings and their their wonder may be resolved, but that doesn't mean that gender dysphoria faded itself. It just meant that their understanding of themselves um, grew and settled into the gender that they are comfortable with with, with society. That's a good segment, and I think it illustrates the complexity of that, but I think the things Valerie is teaching us to believe people when they come out and share this about them, not just say it's a phase or they're confused, but to believe them. Um, I'll just read um, two paragraphs from the book I wrote um, on this subject. My, my advice for those experiencing gender dysphoria is to go slow, work with the therapists, involve your family and church leaders, and seek personal revelation. There are some voices from society that prescribe a path that includes fully transitioning. Only hearing these voices may lead someone with gender dysphoria to conclude this is their path. And so that's this idea, and I think Valerie's teaching it, just everybody needs to go and figure this out on their own and, 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 and go slow and seek personal revelation. I do write this, detransitioning is the cessation a reversal of transgender identification or gender transition. There are stories of those who have transitioned and later regretted this decision and detransitioned. Those who detransition may continue to experience gender dysphoria. Being aware of these stories is helpful to make a more informed decision and seek personal revelation with an eye to a long, ter long term. That was a hard paragraph to me include a little bit because I didn't want that to be weaponized. Um, in a way that, look, you know, here's stories of people that have detransitioned. So, you know, I mean, it's me using this against you, Valerie, and say, this is still just a phase, even though it's a 40-year phase, and you're going to eventually detransition and and even find stories of people that have detransitioned that I'm sure people have done this to you and say, you know, this is what's going to happen. So I just, it's such a careful space that I want you know, everybody's story to be honored and valued and heard and understood. And and our church values personal revelation so much that I think we have to invite people that experience gender dysphoria to seek personal revelation 
work with church leaders, talk to other trans people, um, look at the church's website and make a really informed decision. Any thoughts on that, Valerie? Um, yeah, it's I I personally believe that, well, you gotta remember that I'm talking from the perspective of someone who transitioned in their 50s. <laughs> And I knew exactly what I was doing and I was ready and I was um, just irritated that it had taken so long. Right. Um, at the same time, I've had someone uh, within the last year, we were watching something together. We were watching the same event and there was, there were comments scrolling by. And this person posted a comment that said, I'm struggling with my identity. And so I contacted them to have a discussion. And we had a pretty long discussion over, over Facebook Messenger. And they, they were struggling with their transition because they had decided to transition and they were struggling with it. And it, they weren't sure. And I said, look, you can be transgender without transitioning. There's nothing... You're not you're not not transgender because you choose to not transition. Transitioning is a very big event. Um, it is it's a big event for yourself personally. It's a big event for everyone around you. There's a, this, is, this is a pretty significant change, um, especially if you have if you're older or if you have a long established um, persona that people are expecting to see and understand and suddenly you tell them hey everything you knew about me was wrong uh, so i talked to this person i said look you know there is nothing wrong if you don't feel this is right for you you're no less trans you're no less transgender uh, you're no less um who you are if you decide to step back and let go of the steps you've making you've taken so far in transition and really, this person who had expressed a concern about their comfort with their transition really just needed someone to say, look, it's perfectly valid to stop. You don't have to go down this path. No one makes you go down this path. Transition is extremely personal. Um, there's no wrong or right way to do it. Every person's transition will be different. Some people may go up to a point and realize this isn't for me and back off and maybe even the transition and go back to living as their birth gender. Um, and I have no problem with that. Um, people need to explore. People need to deal with the things that they've got. I do always recommend that they speak with a counselor who understands transgender issues to help them understand what they're feeling and how they're feeling and what steps are available to them. That's and amazing. I'm not going to even call them steps forward or step backwards because they're just steps. You know, it's it's your 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 understanding your life and helping it to conform with who you actually are inside. That's for really some people that means full transition, like myself. For others, not. Will you describe full transition? Will you share our listeners where you are? Sure, and. Um, I'll, I'll throw this caveat out because it's normally it's normally inappropriate to discuss these things with a transgender person. Right. But as I've told you when we came on, that everything's fair game with me. I, I like to discuss things so that people learn about it. I 
uh, started my social transition in September of 2018. That's when I first came out of church and started attending church as Valerie. Um, and about a month before that, in August, was when I started my medical transition, which was HRT, hormone replacement therapy, which meant taking hormones that introduced estrogen into my body and suppressed testosterone production from my body. So I started that in August 2018. I transitioned socially at work. I mean, I'm sorry, at church in September of 2018. And then at work and everyone in my life on January 1 of 2019. That was the date that everything was fully socially transitioned. Um, and at that same time, I was working on the legal stuff. So I was getting my driver's license changed and my passport changed and all those things. I have a female marker on them and my name was changed on all my documentation. I got all of that done. And then at the, I was not certain if and when I would do surgical transition. Um, I knew when I started medical transition, which is HRT, that I wanted to be on HRT for at least two years to let the hormones have two years to affect my body to the extent that they would, to see how my body would change. My body went through several changes. Um, once you do this, you start suppressing the the testosterone and start introducing estrogen, you start going through a second puberty, which was a surprise to me. I, for instance, I didn't think I would get any breast development after transitioning at age 54. I was surprised that I wound up with, with more than I expected, but not nearly what I wanted. Um, and I've had people who would come up and hug me and go, oh my gosh, your skin is so soft. Yeah, because my skin changed a lot. My musculature has changed a lot. Um, I have a much more uh, slight, a much more feminine approach to all the muscles in my body. Um, and so there have been physical changes to, 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 to me. Uh, the hair growth has changed on my, on my body. Uh, but I wanted that to go for two years to give the, those hormones enough, as much time as possible to make the transformations that they would. Um, and then I decided that I would do a, go ahead and do a medical, a, a surgical transition. So I actually am, I am two months post-op from my surgical transition. Uh, so I had what's called a limited depth vaginoplasty and um, bilateral uh, breast augmentation. So I had implants put in for my, my breasts and I had what's called Vaginoplasty is often referred to as bottom surgery. So I had the bottom surgery and had a limited depth option because I'm not attracted to men and not in the least bit interested in um, penetrative sexual acts. And so I had no need for a full vaginal canal. I just needed to have the things that I didn't want removed and everything else looking normal. So I went with a limited depth. So, and also it's much easier to recover from and doesn't have all of the attendant maintenance that you have to take care of to, for these changes to your body. So it was an easier option for me and it was what I needed um, being that I, I wasn't seeking male partners and I knew that I wanted to get rid of the things that I did not want, but didn't necessarily need to go um, into for a full uh, vaginoplasty and production of a, of a vaginal canal. 
So that's where I'm at. I've done all the social transitions that all the transitions that you can think of. Um, there, there are other things I could do. There are facial feminization things I might do, um, but I'm probably not going to do. I think I'm done. I think I'm done with my medical and surgical transitions, and now I'm just living my life the, the, as, as I am. So. Thank you for being so vulnerable and honest. And I echo what Valerie said at the beginning of that is that wouldn't be a question I think any of us should just ask. And I, and so Valerie is very vulnerable and very honest and thank you for doing that. And I've learned when I first started to um, talk to trans people is not wonder about any of this, not wonder about the surgical, um, if it had happened or not, or the hormones or not. If someone just said, I want to be called he, her, she, her, and take on a, a name. I just extended that courtesy as a disciple of Christ instantly. It wasn't earned based on the degree of transitioning. It just, for me, it's just what I would do as grace and as just a disciple of Christ. And I wouldn't make Valerie climb through a height or hurdle, if that's good vocabulary, before I called Valerie Valerie. And so she's been really vulnerable to share uh, more of that. And thank you for doing that. Um, talk about why you stay in the church, because it's not easy, as you know, being a transgender Latter-day Saint. And here you, you've mentioned before you go to Release Society. Why do you stay in the church? So this is an interesting question, because I've been asked that many times. Why do you stay a member of the church? And somebody recently talked about having a faith crisis and asked if other people had gone through one. And I said, well, actually, I kind of went through a reverse faith crisis. And that is that I spent 50 years being a member of the church, but doing so as a boy or a man and kind of feeling like I shouldn't be there because I shouldn't be doing these boy things because I didn't feel like I was a boy or a guy. So the Boy Scouts and the priesthood and all those things were, were happening while at the same time I felt kind of fraudulent about it. And so it wasn't until I transitioned that I could really determine that I really wanted to be there. You know, most most LGBTQ people wind up leaving the church if they after they come out. Sometimes before, there are many members who are in the church who have not come out, and uh, for, for whatever their reasons are. But for me, once I transitioned, that was when I knew yes, I still want to be a member of the church because there are certain things that I think are undeniable. One is that we have to have access to all of the salvific ordinances, the baptism, um, laying on the hand, all of those things. And I think that the priesthood is necessary for those ordinances to be done properly. Um, the core of the gospel, with uh, loving each other and everything that Christ taught us are important. And those are the things that keep me in the church. Uh, there does not to say that there are not things having to do with the church that are not um, congruent with my identity and that 
there are many things that I look at and consider more policy than doctrine that I think will eventually change. And we see change happen all the time in the church. And I know that change can happen both in the members of the church and also within the institution of the church. And I've watched it in my ward. I had no idea how I was going to be received when I transitioned at church. When I went into my bishop the first time and I said, I looked at him and he was a relatively new bishop. And I said, uh, so, hey, bishop, I'd known him for a while, but he was a relatively new bishop. I said, so um, I'm transgender and I'm transitioning on this date. And I just want to know if I'll still be welcome here. And so we had an hour long discussion after that statement. And uh, it really came down to, you know, what is it that I believe about myself? What is it that I believe about the gospel? And are those two things compatible? And are they enough to keep me a member of this particular organization within the church? And the answer was yes. And I still believe the, the, the court the core of the gospel, the basic tenets are all there. And I've lived them my entire life and I continue, continue and intend to continue living them. Uh, this, the question was, am I still going to be welcome when I do that? And that's what I needed to know from them. And my ward has been absolutely welcoming and lovely. I've been quite, even before we, we can get into the issues with the institutional church if we want to later, but I can tell you that the people in my congregation have been absolutely warm and welcoming. I love, I wrote that line down, your question and his answer, will I be welcome here? And I just, I love mm -hmm. that you feel welcome there. And I, and I, you're going to release society. Do you feel welcome at release society? Absolutely. And I was, I'd spoken with several of the sisters. There was a time when I wasn't allowed to go. And I transitioned in, Jan in September. Actually, I was going to transition in January of 2019 at church. But then I had a discussion with my stake president. And we talked about the fact that I was transitioning. And he said there would be restrictions placed upon my membership and participation. And uh, when I asked when those would be starting he said it depended upon how i looked and i said well how about the way i look right now and i had just come from work i'd ridden my motorcycle to, to the church um and he looked at me and he goes well i see that you have pierced ears with some small metal studs in them and you have longer female and he goes that by that by itself wouldn't be a problem which i thought was interesting and then I then he said, uh, and I see long nails with a polish on them. He said, I guess with those two together, they would probably need to start now. And what I didn't say to him, and he's heard me say this later, though, was, you know, I've looked exactly this way for the last two years while I taught the senior youth Sunday school. And nobody said a word. But if that's the way things are, that's the way things are. Because now that you know. So he um, said the restrictions we need to start now. And that was in late August, early September. And so I said, well, if the restrictions are going to start now, I might as well just transition now at church. And so I called my bishop and I said, hey, bishop, um, at your next meeting with the ward council, let them know what's happening because I want the ward council to know. Um, and then I'm going to start attending church as Valerie. 
and that was that was the transition point for me at church. Um, and did something and so, you know, change? Gone off on a tangent. And forgot what your question was. Did something change to allow you then to attend Relief Society? Did the local? Yeah, what that changed? was the question. So originally, I was told that I could attend neither Relief Society or priesthood. I was I was banned from the third hour, is what I called it. And so, and that's the way things were until February of this year when the new handbook came out. And interestingly, there was not a lot of documentation about how the church responded and interacted with transgender people before February. Um, there were a couple of lines in one of the handbooks. I used to be executor secretary, so I had access to all these handbooks. And so I looked at them very carefully. You know, I, I was planning these things for decades. <laughs> but so I knew that in the handbook, it said that if you had um, transsexual surgery, then you were probably going to be uh, put up for church discipline and more than likely excommunicated when it came out. And I knew that was in there. And But that was really all that was available. And then at some point in talking with other people, I, I came across a letter that someone showed me a copy of that I never saw again that listed, it was on church letterhead, and it listed several things that would be restrictions imposed on a transitioning member. And so I knew exactly what to expect. And I went into this meeting expecting these things, and that's exactly what I got when I left that meeting, which was that I couldn't attend either Leaf Society or priesthood, and I was just the side of disfellowship. I couldn't speak in in um, sacrament meeting. I couldn't pray as a voice for a group. Um, and if I went to a bathroom, I could use the correct one, but I had to have it cleared out first. And the only thing that was short of being disfellowship was that I was, well, my temple recommend was not going to be renewed, but I was still allowed to take the sacrament. That's why I call it just short of disfellowship. Uh, so um, those are all the restrictions that were put in place. And then in January and in February of this year, the new handbook came out where they consolidated the handbook one and handbook two, and they made all the stuff that was previously limited to particular members of the leadership available to everyone. And uh, in there, they have a section on transgender participation. And in there, they changed the everything as far as i'm concerned for me it was very good for many other transgender people it's still not ideal so for me uh, well the restrictions now are that um i can't have a temple recommend i can't exercise the priesthood and i'm restricted from some callings and that's basically it at this point um so i contacted actually i didn't contact my my relief society president contacted my bishop i got a message from her within hours of that being released telling me that she had already contacted the bishop to get me into relief society because she had always wanted me to be in relief society several of the sisters had expressed that same desire um they did not understand why i couldn't be there and they had been my advocates um but she contacted the bishop and said look i'm it says in here that you can attend all meetings and I have no idea why you would want to go to a priesthood meeting, <laughs> especially um, appearing the way that you do. And I think you should be in my meeting. 
And so three days later, I finally got the notification from my bishop and from the state president that, yes, I was finally invited to Relief Society. And so I started attending Relief Society in um, February, or I think it wound up in March. Uh, I went the next day to Relief Society, and that's the last Relief Society we've had in person because of COVID. since then. So I apologized to people. I said, I went to I went to my one Relief Society meeting, and it was so traumatic for the church that they shut down church meetings <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> so, but no, I, I was invited in, and I have been fully participating in Relief Society since then. The only thing that's not happening right now is that I'm not assigned as a ministering sister, nor am I assigned ministering sisters. Um, I am assigned a ministering couple, which is one of the things that had been done even before that. As my Leaf Society president said, look, I can do this. I can make give you a ministering couple so that you have a woman who is your ministering person, uh, which I was very grateful for. Um, that ministering couple is now the bishop and the bishop's wife. That's so I've, I've had been transitioned over to a really good friend, one of my staunchest allies, I think, in the ward, is now my ministering. Uh, the, the sister and my ministering couple, and I'm very grateful for that. That's so, just, uh, yeah, things changed in February. Um, for me, it was great because I'm, I've already been endowed. I'm already sealed to my family. I don't expect those things to go away. So really the things that are restricted now are some callings. And to be honest, most people don't want those callings. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and I am, uh, not allowed to exercise the priesthood, but since I thought I really shouldn't have had it ever in the first place, I'm okay with that. Uh, and I won't get my temple recommend. I don't like that. I prefer that I be able to attend the temple and do work. Uh, so that's not good. But for a younger transgender person who won't have the opportunity to be endowed, who won't have the opportunity if they're a trans man to be, um, ordained in the priesthood, uh, who won't have access to the temple. Those are, if those are important to them, and if we believe that those are important ordinances, those those are pretty painful points for a lot of transgender people. For me, it wasn't a big deal, but I'm very much aware of, of, of the big deal that it is for other people, and I really would like that to change. For instance, I don't understand why a person could not go through for their own endowment regardless of their gender identity. I don't understand that at all. Most of the language in the temple is inclusive in a lot of places. And um, I think it's even changed. I haven't been since they changed it. So I'm not sure what the more inclusive language actually is as of recent. But even if they have questions about doing proxy work because of your gender, I don't know why someone couldn't go in for themselves regardless of, of gender identity or gender expression. So, and I think some of those things will still change over time. I, I really do. We've watched them change over and over again. So that's a great segment, Valerie. And I just look at a few thoughts come to my mind, listeners. I think of President Nelson, take your vitamins. The restoration's ongoing. I think of um, what. Christ is trying to do in his ministry and what that bishop and your ward is trying to do is everybody's welcome here. And the fact that every, to me, 
you know, no one's worse off with you coming to Release Society. It, it doesn't cost any of the sisters anything to have you there. It just it brings us together as the body of Christ, and they want you there. And and to me, that's what the doctrine of Christ would teach. And I even think, you know, do, when he said, do it unto the least of these, you're doing unto me. And sometimes our transgender friends, we've marginalized them to the point where I don't think God made them the least of these, but societally we have, and we've pushed transgender people to the margins. And so I look at my responsibility as a Latter-day Saint, I should find the people that are furthest out on the margins and do everything I can to help feel included. So to me, what your Release Society president is doing, inviting a transgender woman to feel welcome at Release Society, and how much, I wish our listeners could see your face and how much that means to you, Valerie, to feel welcome and needed um, with your Release Society sisters. And to me, that's just, no one's giving up anything. No one had to no one had to step away from their a part of their belief to make room for you. To me, they just honored their belief. Now, right. I just recognize to me this is just an area where this is the way I handle it, listeners. I don't know what the church should do. I don't know God's will, and I'm not a leader in the church, but I just recognize there's more work to do in this space. And we've seen um more chapters written, so to speak, in February of 2020, when it became fine for Valerie to come to Release Society. And and so Valerie has some feelings about what might change down the road. And I don't want anybody to be triggered when someone sort of thinks how they may feel as they, long as they continue to do their best and sustain and don't form movements to say this is how the church would should change. I think it's fine for individual members, especially LGBTQ members, to feel safe opening up on what they hope happens down the road. Hope is a really sacred word for me, and I don't want to do anything to take people's hopes away as long as they're trying to do the best they can within the current framework to make it work. And um, otherwise, people like Valerie leave (laughs) Um, because um, I do want to quote from the new transgender website. Um, it's in my book, and that's the reason I have it handy. Um, this is on the LDS Transgender website that came out in February that Valerie's talking about. If you have family members or friends who self-identify as transgender, pray for the love of Christ as you strive to follow the example of the Savior and love them. The commandment is to love one another includes those who don't experience the world the same way as we do. So here's something that's pretty revolutionary in my lifetime. The church is a transgender dedicated website. I don't think it'll ever go away. It's about, it's just limited number of pages, limited quotes. But if we shut our eyes and looked at that website in five years now, Valerie, it's going to be pages and pages and stories and stories and policy flushed out a little bit more and just more space created for people that feel gender dysphoria. And we recognize, I, I certainly hope so. And we recognize, as you pointed out, suicide is something that transgender people certainly feel. Well, we're really at the hour and 15 mark, and I'm trying to keep podcasts about that length. So, but we could keep, just give us anything you'd like to share in closing with our listeners. Before you say that, I do want to, just while you're thinking of that, um, on our listenlearnandlove.org website, under the podcast tab, we have a section and Valerie's will be here also. It's gender and non-binary 
um, podcasts. And we have others like episode 258. I'm sorry, 254 is David Smirthwaite. He's an LDS bishop, former bishop who experiences gender dysphoria. Um, And we have, and he's, you know, pretty far along in his life. Bob Burgraff, same way. So it's not just a younger person's thing. (laughs) It's not just something new with the world that is sort of a sign of the world going downhill. I don't believe that because here's Valerie that's experienced this for four decades. So this to me is not something new. We're just eliminating the shame and the self-loathing and people are able to share this part about them. And so to me, that's an improvement of society and we do a better job then of meeting people's needs and ministering. But I'll send it back to you, Valerie, for any final comments. Um, one thing I wanted to clarify about the new policy is that it's not necessarily applied the same way everywhere. I, I know other transgender women who are not still allowed to attend Relief Society. So there's still some True. degree of, of uh, uneven application of those rules. I'm very fortunate, I think, that my state president and bishop have the approach that they do. Um, I still have concerns if I travel somewhere, how I will be received if I walk into Relief Society meeting in another state. I I really honestly don't know. Um, I will walk in with the assumption that I should be there, and hopefully that nothing will happen. Uh, A final thought. I, I, I had one that was fleeting. Know that every LGBTQ member who reveals themselves to you is doing so as an act of love. And it is really, it is an experience that um, someone else used this phrasing, and I love it. It is a sacred experience for them to connect with you in a way that they may not be connecting with anyone else because they, they trust you. Um, and they love you. And if you have the opportunity to learn this about someone else because they've told you, you just know that this is because you've developed a kind of relationship that lets them be who they are. And I've, I've chatted with other people who call me with that very question. Do I tell people that I'm gay or lesbian or transgender and it really comes down to how they feel about someone and then i get the stories back where they 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 contacted someone and they 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 saw the sign that said it would be safe to do so and they felt safe telling this person and then it just becomes an expression of love and of um acceptance and of belonging it's so much it's so it's so difficult to feel like you belong when you can't be yourself around other people but when you can be yourself and bring your whole self into an environment or any situation you walk in with all of the aspects of you on display and you're still loved and accepted then you finally feel like you belong and we can't we can't have everyone feeling they belong in our congregations until we accept them for exactly who they are. It's a great final segment. Valerie, you have a you are a beautiful woman with a beautiful life mission that have, have done wonderful things. And 
and just will continue to help us better understand. So on behalf of all of our listeners, I think you know 10 to 15,000 people will listen to your story over the next um, four, several months, and you're going to help a lot of people and keep us together as the same human family, as the same keep our families together and just bring more understanding. So on behalf of our listeners, thank you, Valerie Green, for being on a podcast. And this is Richard Osler, your host, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.